verses. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. This is God's word to you because he loves you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as, an, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for how real your word is, uh, that it doesn't paint a two-dimensional, superficial picture of life, but knows the reality of life, that life includes suffering and hardship. And we pray that you give us courage to receive your word, and especially that your word would turn our hearts, that we would uh, entrust our souls to you as our creator, as our savior, as our redeemer, as our sustainer. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would take your perfect holy word and through uh, your servant, an imperfect sinner, that you would communicate the truth of the gospel to your people and that you would apply the truth of this text to each uh, life that is is represented here, each family that is represented here, and that you would bring hope and turn our hearts that we would trust and rest in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So... um, Last summer, we began the, the first half of this First Peter series, and uh, we did the first two chapters. And the na- what we had titled this series was The Christian in the Crucible, because a crucible is, is where metal is heated up and the, the dross is, is burned away and, and metal is refined. And that's what Peter says in, in, in a couple of passages in, uh, in, in Peter, first in chapter 1 and here again where he talks about the fiery trials, is uh, is that the Christian life is, is partly, at least, about walking through a fire, uh, a fire of suffering and trials where God refines us. That's part of what God is doing. And uh, I think that it's a terribly important topic for us because when we ask the question, where is God? Where is God at work in my life? Usually when we're talking with one another and we're saying, where's God at work? It's generally where we have certain hopes and dreams. And you say, God was opening doors and he was making things happen, and I couldn't have even planned it, and just the right person came, and he was blessing me. And I see God is, was present in my life. And generally, so that's when we think that God is, is present and at work in our life is when we're being blessed. And it's certainly true, but, you know, I, I, just recently I was listening to a talk by a gal who she was talking about um, relinquishing our lives to God, kind of surrendering to God with our lives. And she was... Uh, shared a, a whole bunch of illustrations of, of people that she knew, and, and most of the illustrations went something like this. She would say, I, um, this gal, I, I had a friend, so-and-so, who got married, and she really wanted to have a family. And she desperately wanted children, and, and for several years, her and her husband, they couldn't 
have children. It was deeply troubling to her. And finally, after several years, she decided to relinquish to God. And I, I'm going to give my life to you. And I'm going to let your will be done. And three months later, you know what happened? She had a baby. And God was at work in life. See, when you relinquish your life to God, God works and he blesses you. And which is certainly true. That certainly happens. When we relinquish, God has good things for us. And he, he gives good gifts. He's a giver of good gifts. But the big message is that uh, God is present if she got the baby. And it, it doesn't always work that way. And is God not present if she didn't get the baby? And uh, that's a big question of um, God is giving good gifts. And he wants to do that. But what's amazing about this passage, in which in many ways summarizes what a lot of what uh, Peter's talking about in First Peter, is that when we suffer, um, these sufferings are actually appointed by God often. Actually, always. God is sovereign over our lives. In the trials, the, uh, God is not the author of evil, but everything works into his plan. And this is what he says there. You see that in, uh, in, in the verse 12 there. Beloved. I love how he, the tenderness he starts this passage with. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What is he saying? How do you not... Um, how do you not be surprised when trials come in your life, when suffering comes in your life? How, when suffering comes in your life? How, do, how does that not totally derail your life when a trial comes and say, God is not good, where is God? How does that not happen? Well, what Peter says is you need to understand trials. What is the biblical meaning of them? Why are they there? Explain them. What are they for? And only then will you be able to walk through trials and kind of and keep your faith intact. So what, uh, what I want to do is we look at this passage. I just want to answer two questions. And, and the first is, what is suffering? How do we understand it? What do we make of it? What's a biblical understanding of suffering and trials that come into our life that, um, that we would not have cho- chosen if, if it was our choice? What is the meaning of, the, of suffering? And second, how do we respond to it? And I think the answer is it's, it's surprising and very powerful. So, so first... Um, what is suffering? And Peter uses in First Peter one image in particular to describe trials, hardships that come, uh, come into our life. And uh, one image in particular, and the image is fire. He says that trials, suffering are like fire. And that verse I just read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And now the word that's used there for um, fiery trial, it's the... Uh, uh, a pyrosis, which is uh, where we get the, the word pyro from. And actually, Peter is writing from Rome. You know, uh, Peter was known as the leader of the church in Rome, and he's writing from there in the early 60s of the first century. And during that time, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire was Nero. And uh, Nero is kind of known as the first emperor to, to systematically persecute Christians. And one of the things that Nero's most famous for is uh, in 64, he set fire to a part of Rome. Uh, three of the 14 districts of Rome uh, were burned down by a fire that was started by Nero because he had kind of this building project that he wanted to do in this part of the city, which included a palace for himself. And uh, so after he set fire to Rome, um, after the investigation, it came out that he started to be blamed for being 
starting the fire. And so he needed some kind of scapegoat, someone to take it out on. And there was this new religious group that no one liked, the Christians, who were always talking about hellfire and God's judgment coming with fire. And he thought, okay, this, this works perfectly. And so Christians were uh, tortured and accused of starting this fire. And even the Roman historians say the Christians didn't do it. Um, <laughs> Uh, Nero was uh, just finding someone to blame the fire on. And so they took the Christians, they f- you know, fed them to dogs, they were ripped apart by dogs, they were crucified. And even Nero would take Christians and light them on fire and use them as torches to light his dinner parties. And, um, and so this fire, fiery trials for Peter. And actually Peter was martyred under, Nero, uh, under Nero's persecutions. Fiery trials for Peter has very... Um, uh, vivid meaning for Peter. But what's amazing um, is that, you know, if we're, if we're early Christians and you see your brothers and sisters are being thrown to the dogs or being set on fire, you'd say, what is going, everything feels wild and out of control. What is going on? Uh, where is God in this? I, I, we're this little sect that's just starting this little movement of Christians and we're just being uh, stomped on. Where is God? It feels wild and, it's, and it feels out of control. And actually, uh, um, you know, Paul even says in Romans that uh, God appointed Nero as to be emperor. He says, you should honor Nero. Uh, he couldn't be in power unless God put him there. You say, what? The guy who's persecuting Christians? Is, is God is allowing him to be in power? What is, what is happening? And um, this is a tremendous mi- mystery. But even though God is not the author of evil... God uses evil and suffering for his sovereign purposes. He uses them. Um, And he does that on a large scale through emperors. And he does that on a small scale in our own lives. Trials and sufferings that God uses for his um, sovereign purposes that he knows that he's doing in our life. He is totally in control. And, um, And so what's fascinating about the word fire is that fire on the one hand, you know, the heat, the burning, is a picture of, trials, hardships that we walk through, but simultaneously, fire in the Bible is is a picture of who God is, right? That's what Hebrews says, um, our God is a consuming fire. Uh, In in, uh, Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, Moses, when he uh, goes up on Mount Sinai, it says the glory of the Lord was like a devouring devouring fire. And so um, how can it be that the presence of God fire, and our hardships are the the same thing simultaneously. God is active and at work in those hardships. They're happening simultaneously. How can that be? Well, I think it's helpful to think a little bit more of this image of fire. What does fire do? I think fire does two things that even in this text come out, is that fire reveals and fire purifies. Um, First, fire reveals. Um, You know, earlier in 1 Peter Peter says that, that God is testing us like precious metals that are being put through fire, like through the crucible. And what fire does is it separates the elements in a metal, and it separates the kind of dross and the worthless parts, part of a metal, and it brings out the pure part of the metal. And uh, so they're separated. They become distinct, and it shows what the metal's really made of. Is this really valuable, or is this really um, just have a little of the real gold, and it's mostly, uh, mostly trash? And it reveals what's really there. And, you know, I took a, a leadership course a couple of years ago, and that was one of the things the guy said about leaders. He said, you know, um, the character of a leader is not determined by his circumstances. It's revealed by his circumstances. 
The character of a leader is not determined by circumstances. It's revealed. So when hard things come, hardships come, they don't determine what our character is and who we really are. The hardships actually show what's really in us. And, you know, you've, I'm, you maybe have seen that. You know, someone gets, uh, gets cancer and a major trial comes into their life. And some people, they say, I never would have chosen it in my life, but I actually I drew far closer to God than I ever was by, by going through cancer. And they become far more tender. And uh, they're gentler, and they, they endured things that they never thought they would ever have been able to endure. There was a gold in them that kind of came to the surface in the midst of that suffering, right? It revealed who they were. And you might have seen it on the, uh, the other way. That a tragedy happens when someone gets cancer and, and it turns into bitterness and hardness. They separate themselves from people to say, I don't want anyone in my life. Get away from me. It hardens. It's revealing who, what's really happening, who the real person is. And, um, and the question is, what's the difference? What's the difference between the person who the hardship brings out this soft and courageous and compassionate person versus a person where suffering brings out bitterness and hardness. What, what's the difference? Well, I, I won't go too much into this, but in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, it says, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, um, I can't go too far into it, but in Peter, to obey the gospel means to believe the gospel. That's what it means to obey the gospel is to believe it. The gospel says that on the one hand that Jesus has died for all of our sins, he's reconciled to us, us to God, so that we're God's children, we're his beloved, we're in his family. And that also that if we're in Christ, that what God did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead, gave him complete healing, complete restoration, he will do that for us um, when Christ comes again. So uh, that's the promise of the gospel. And when someone believes in that, they trust in that, they hope in that, it's like gold that's living in them. And when the fires and suffering come, that gold begins to show itself. It becomes, it, it becomes very clear. And actually, um, um, you know, for some of you, there is a, you are in a hardship right now. You are in suffering. You are in trials. You are, you're in an experience where you say, I would never have chose this for my life. I never would have expected that I'd have to face this. And the question for us to ask is, what is it? What is it revealing about you right now? Are you finding that you're having to trust God in ways that you've never had to trust Him before? Are you finding that you're growing in compassion for people? You're becoming far more compassionate towards people um, because you're, going, you're enduring this? Have, have you seen that you've now walked through walls, walked through difficulties that you never thought you would have been able to endure, and it turns out you did? That's the gold of the gospel that's showing up as you're walking through the fire. Or is, do you find yourself retreating from people? Do you find yourself growing, growing bitter? The question is, what is the thing that you're ultimately resting in? What's the thing that you're hoping in that God is going to do for me what he did for Jesus? That um, I am reconciled to God, that God's sovereign plan is watching over me? I can trust him. He is good. Can you believe it? Do you believe that? And uh, so, you know, of course... If I ask you both those things, we're probably some mix <laughs> of those two, right? Um, for many of us, trials do bring out that gold of the gospel, but there's also elements of retreat and, and hardness. And so um, that, that's the, the second element of what fire does. The fire doesn't only reveal what's really there, 
reveal the real, what you're really made of, but uh, fire also purifies. Um, there's an interesting little phrase in this uh, passage in verse 17. You might have saw this. For it, is ti- for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What does that mean? Uh, judgment again. Um, well, let me tell you one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's going to punish his people, his house. All of, if you're a Christian, all of God's punishment and wrath has landed on Jesus. There's none left for us. Um, but, you know, that word judgment it, in our culture, it doesn't sit well with us. I mean, I, I, if you feel that way when you read the Bible and you come across passages that are about judgment and you say, ah, I wish this wasn't there. But if you, if you read in the Old Testament, people had a very different reaction to God's judgment, especially in the Psalms. It was not something that they, that they, for the most part, dreaded. It was something that they celebrated. It was something that, you know, trees and valleys and rivers clapped their hands over as people, something that people sang and danced over. Why is that? Well, um, it's because God being a judge isn't so much like he's kind of this crotchety school teacher who's kind of like, tis, tis, you did bad things, I'm judging you. That's not so much what God is. Uh, a judge in the Old Testament is more like William Wallace, uh, someone, a rescuer, someone who comes in and, uh, and rescues the oppressed. And he liberates people and he frees people. That's what, if you read the book of Judges, that's what they do. The judges free people. And, you know, actually, I just watched this movie this last week called uh, uh, Taken. Shannon fell asleep, and I'm, she's probably better off than she did. But uh, it's a, this movie about a, a girl who um, goes to Paris as a, uh, uh, with her friend, and she's kidnapped, and she's going to be uh, sold into slavery and Fortunately, her dad is uh, ex-special forces, and he uh, goes to Paris and hunts her down. And, you know, the closing scene is she's on this yacht, and um, there's bad guys all over this yacht, and he jumps off a bridge into the yacht, and he basically cleans house and goes in, gets his daughter, and she's weeping and crying, Daddy, you saved me. And, um, but you know what? That's very much closer to the picture of what a judge is. You know, go in and clean house and rescue those who are oppressed. That's what God, that's what God does. And, and that's the picture is, is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's this picture that our world is full of brokenness and sin and oppression. And God is going to come and clean, clean house. He's going to set things right. He's going to be the hero who's going to make everything right. And so it's something to be celebrated that God is going to judge the world. But, you know... Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you something fascinating about Christianity, our, our faith. Is that this is one of the things that people are most critical about, most suspicious about religious people. They say, this is exactly your problem. Is you think that God is going to come and he's going to clean house. And all those infidels, those dirty pagans out there, he's going to wipe them all out. And he's going to be on your team. And God, uh, God loves us and God's going to take them out. And he's, you know, God's purifying our judgment. Yeah, it works good for you, but what about for the other side, huh? He's going to be purifying everyone else, but what about you? And they say, actually, religious people do even more oppression, in the world, because they say that God needs to wipe out the infidels, right? That's what religious people do. But Peter is so much more honest than that. Look at how honest Peter is. What does he say? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He doesn't say that God needs to purify them out there, all the wicked people, and not work on us. 
He's saying that we, just as much as anyone else, need the purifying, the washing, the transformation, the, the liberating. Uh, the, there's something that needs to be cleansed and washed in us, even as God's beloved chosen people. And, uh, and by the way, that's why the gospel... When we believe in the gospel, it never makes us feel superior to anyone else. We never look down on other people and say, oh, we're the righteous Christians. We're not. We're Christians because we're sinners, and we need, we need God to work on us. We need Jesus' forgiveness. So there's never a sense of superiority, and we know that God's judgment needs to land on us as much as anyone else. And the way that God does that in our lives is through trials and suffering. That's where God purifies us, is, is, is walking through uh, trials and suffering and, um, you know, actually, I, I heard a story about a pastor who was talking to a, a silversmith. And he'd asked him, you know, okay, as you're purifying silver, how do you know when, I don't know if this is a true story. This sounds too good to be true. But uh, how do you know when the silver is pure, that you've gotten out all the dross, all the filth has gotten out of it? How do you know? And the silversmith says, well, when I can see my face in the reflection, then I know that all the dross is out. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. As he puts us through fire, and it's because he loves us, and he wants to see his own reflection, who he is. God wants to see himself in us reflected back. And it comes through the fire. And you know that. If you've been through it, if you've walked through a trial, you know that that's, that's where God was working the most in your life. That's where God did the greatest change in your life. And that's how deeply God loves you, is that he's, uh, is, is that he, he's even willing, and he's going to walk with you through it. And the big thing is for you to walk through the, the wall of the trial and stay with God, okay? Now, in the, uh, this passage, I'll tell you, um, it does have one particular kind of trial or suffering in mind. Um, and you look at verse 14, this is what it says. If you, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. So uh, Peter says that one of the main trials that God uses to test us um, is when we might be insulted or you know, we might feel ashamed for being a Christian, that we're around non-Christians. What are people going to think of us because of what we believe? What, uh, what kind of consequences are we going to face because we're Christians and people don't like that we're Christians? And, you know, um, I'll tell you that this passage was working a lot on me this week. As I, as I think about, you know, I've got to get up and talk about Jesus. And how much am I just, am I really want people's approval of me? How much is that really the thing that's driving me that I want people to say, wow, you know, you said good things. Way, way to be funny. Way to be, way to be good. How much is that the thing that's really driving me? And am I willing to say things that are unpopular, things that people aren't going to like because I trust God and because I know this is what God's commanded me to do? And I'll, I'll tell you honestly, I saw this week a lot of cowardice in my own heart. And one of the things that God showed me is that the only way that you're going to be able to walk in, in, a, in the kind of heat of maybe being insulted, uh, people looking down on you, or, or being ashamed of being a Christian, is if you live your life on your knees before the face of God is that when you uh, have been face-to-face with God in the gospel, Jesus brings you into the presence of that consuming fire, and you find that the only one that I fear is God alone. I don't fear what man thinks of me. And I don't even fear the, the trials that I'm going to face. 
I can walk through them only because I've stood before that, that greater fire, that greater approval. And so I think this leads partly to our, our, our second point is not just what is suffering. Suffering, Peter says, is fire. It reveals who we are and it purifies us. But second, how do we respond to it? And I'll tell you, you know, one thing that's interesting about this passage is it doesn't give you kind of little pithy ideas. You know, here's a suggestion on how to deal with it. Peter gives you commandments. He says, this is, I'm giving you a commandment on how to deal with suffering. You've got to take it like that, like it's one of the Ten Commandments. And he says, uh, two commands are, first of all, to not be surprised by suffering and trials when they happen. And second, to rejoice. Do not be surprised and rejoice. Now, these might sound kind of trite and insensitive, but I assure you they're not. Um, and the first is, do not be surprised. You see that in, in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. That's a, that's a command. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes uh, upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says that your trials and suffering did not catch God off guard. This was not a surprise to him that you're going through this. But actually, they've been ordained. They've been, everything is, uh, um, has been calculated by God. And let me just, I want to share with you just a couple of illustrations of, of people that have, you know, I've known in my life that have faced suffering and how the sovereignty of God has helped them to walk through these trials. And the first is a, a friend of mine. He's about just a couple of years older than I am. He has four kids almost exactly age of my kids, very young kids, um, you know, just starting his career, and this was just a couple of years ago, he was changing his shirt, and his wife saw a reg- black, disfigured region on his back, and she said, what is that thing on your back? And he quickly went into the hospital and found, found out that it was melanoma, and actually, I, I, I don't know the level, I think it was level two, fairly progressive, so it was fairly serious, and, you know, he had to get it biopsied, it was, um, and all of a sudden, they're facing this crisis of four young kids, and this could kill him. But what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do? What is God doing in this? And, and in God's grace, their pastor just happened to be talking about the sovereignty of God in all their life. And they said, that is exactly what we needed to hear. We never would have chose this, we never would have wanted it, but what gave us the strength to walk through this trial was to know that God was sovereign, that we can trust him, and that he's good. And that um, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know that whatever does happen, it's, exactly, it's, it's, it's going to be the best thing for me, that God works uh, all things for the good of those who love him. And so they trusted him. And, you know, he's, he's, he didn't die, but um, it's still a threat to his family. And... Um, and it's when we know that God is sovereign, that God is calculating our lives, that um, God is ordaining, he's orchestrating our lives, that we can walk through trials and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can trust God. The second example is, is a gal, uh, the sister of a close friend of ours who, um, she got married, very excited to start her family, and um, she found very, uh, a few years later, as they've been trying to have kids, that she couldn't have children and um, was deeply heartbreaking to her. And so they, they began to try the process of in vitro, and, and this may be a process that some of you have gone through that I, I know about or don't know about, but um, it's a very emotional process, and finally, uh, she was pregnant with twins, went through the whole pregnancy, and 
there, uh, both of them died on delivery, one in her arms. Heartbreaking. Actually, Shannon was with her sister when her sister found out, and um, listening to her, a whole family devastated and heartbroken. And I'll tell you what's very powerful is I hear about her processing this, obviously a long time of grieving, that she did say at one point that, you know, it might be my lot to be a woman of sorrows. And she didn't say that as in defeatist or mad at God. She said it in trusting God, that this might be my lot, and I trust that God is good, and I'm going to believe him. Of course, there's been, God's given them some grace. They've adopted, and they've, uh, there's been some peace and healing that has come there. But that acceptance, can you imagine? Imagine what, how much comfort is God going to have for her when she stands before him, and she said, my lot was to be a woman of sorrows, and yet I still trusted you. As deep as that, uh, that valley of sorrow was for her, the comfort that God is going to pour on her is going to be equally and far more as deep. He will pour it on her. And there's not one tear that she has shed that is not in God's bottle. That's what Psalm 56 says. He is storing all her tears. He's counting everyone. He knows everyone, and he will bring comfort to her. And it's because she knows the sovereignty of God that she walked through that trial. Do you know the sovereignty of God in your own life? I'll tell you, when you know that, that, that God will make everything right, he will bring every comfort to us, only then can you know the second part of how do we respond. And Peter says that we respond to suffering by rejoicing. By rejoicing. You see that in the same verse there, that, uh, that, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering for you, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I'll tell you that we know that that doesn't mean, um, you know, put on a smile and, oh, everything's chipper, you know, everything's great. That's not, that's not what that means. And we know it because he says that you're sharing the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't say uh, when he was going to the cross, oh, everything's just fine and, fine and dandy and I'm, I'm happy and everything's great. That's not what he did. He, he was bl- uh, uh, blood coming out of his forehead, and, uh, he, and he was pleading with God, take this suffering away from me. I don't want it. And so we're invited. God invites us to ask him to take away our suffering from us. But Hebrews tells us that it was because of the joy that was set before Jesus. He looked ahead to a joy. That's how he endured the cross. There was a joy that he was going after. And that's the same thing for us is um, that we need to look at our life and see that, it's, it, that our trials are sitting in, in, the, in the setting of a bigger story where God is making everything right. And, you know, some of you, as I talk about suffering, and, and that we, I don't know what God's lot is for you. That might terrify you, uh, that, that God might have suffering at some point in your life. It's because you're only looking at the suffering. You need to look at the bigger story. And the bigger story is that God is making all things right and that God promises that he will work all things for, your good, for the good of those who love him. He assures you of that. He promises you that. Rest in that. Have joy in that. And look forward to the day. The day will come where you will have every comfort and you will be in the presence of God. And live in that. And, and any trial that you face, he will give you the strength to walk through. He promises that to you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come before you, you know our frame, that we are weak, that we are but dust. And it, 
you know the fears that we have of trials that we may have right now or that may be in the future. And Father, we just confess we don't know the future. The future is yours, and we trust you, and we know that you are good. Take your word and plant it deep in us so that we would have the strength to actually rejoice, to uh, take joy in what you are doing and what you've promised to us, and help us to not be surprised. And we pray that uh, the gospel would be in us, that we would rest in that, and then as we face trials, it would reveal the gold of the gospel in us, and that you would use us in this broken world. Give us courage and give us faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.